I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Thank you so much for downloading Making a Killing. I'm Bethany McLean. And I'm cutting through the noise to reframe the stories you know and uncover the ones you don't know. Truth is stranger than fiction. I think about that saying a lot because it has the great virtue of being, well, true. And it's particularly true when it comes to the world of business. I mean, from the financial crisis to Bernie Madoff, you could not make this stuff up. Even with that high bar, the story of Carlos Ghosn stands out. Ghosn, of course, is the former head of Nissan Motor and Renault. He is, was, a revered figure in the automotive world. In the fall of 2018, he was jailed in Japan on charges of financial misconduct. While he was out on bail, he hatched an escape plan that involved being smuggled out of the country, escaping security by hiding in a large black box, which, thank goodness, apparently did have breathing holes cut in it. He's now living in a pink mansion in Lebanon a pink mansion that Nissan had bought and renovated for his use. I mean, right? Talk about truth being stranger than fiction. So there are at least two sides to this story. The official version, the Japanese version, is that Gon stole from Nissan, partly by paying himself more than anyone, including investors, knew. Here's a surprise, Gon denies those charges. In his telling, Nissan's Japanese executives wanted to be rid of him and found a horrible way to do it. I have not fled justice, I have escaped injustice and political persecution, Gohan said in a statement after his escape. For sure, Japan treats white-collar criminals very differently than the U.S. does. Among other things, Gohan was held in solitary confinement and interrogated for eight hours a day. The conviction rate is close to 100%. My longtime friend Joe Nocera wrote in a recent Bloomberg piece that Gohan thought to himself, you are going to die in Japan if you don't get out. So... Gone took matters into his own hands. Is this 
justifiable? Or is this a sign of the entitlement of the global elite? And who is Carlos Ghosn? An innocent man wrongly accused? Or a common thief? I began this season of Making a Killing with Joe Nocera, talking about Jewel, so it seemed fitting to end it with Joe, who wrote this about Carlos Ghosn. When you get right down to it, Nissan and the Japanese prosecutors put a rich, powerful man, a man unaccustomed to being defied, through hell. Now that he has escaped, it's his turn to put them through hell. I'm thrilled to have Joe here to talk about what will surely go down in history as one of the greatest business stories ever. Certainly one of the greatest escapes ever, that's for sure. <laughs> so how did he do it? Let's start with that. Well, the best part about that is nobody yet knows. There's only, I mean, for instance, you know, when you think about it, if you make an escape like that, you have to plan it for months, right? Months. How did he find the guy who planned it? How did they how did they communicate with each other? Well, wait, on that question, is it even a guy who planned it or do we think it might have been his wife? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, well, I'm pretty sure it wasn't his wife. No, there's a there's a, a man who's a, um, you know, former paramilitary type who yeah. does security, these kind of high risk security. This jobs. guy, Michael Taylor, right? Yes, that's right. His name is Michael Taylor. Thank you. So how did Michael Taylor get in touch with Carlos Ghosn? How did they plan it so that Ghosn knew what to do and when to do it? Um, it's obvious that they had they had come to Japan and they were watching the people who were watching Gone. So there was a there was a camera that watched them all the time, and there were people out Japanese, you know, security guards outside, but they realized that there was a certain week in the year when the Japanese basically took the week off because it was a you know, their high holidays, their big vacation time. And they weren't there. And they figured that out. And they realized that that was potentially the time to do it. And so, you know, the first round of rumors, oh, it was, I'm so sorry if it wasn't true, was that he had, he had hidden in a, in, a, in, a, in a musical instrument case for like for a double bass. I remember you being yeah. so excited about oh, this I over the that. holidays. I so I wanted that too, to be true. It was too good to be but true. But it wasn't. But, you know, it's kind of pretty amazing what he did. He, he walked out. He put one of those masks around his face, as many Japanese people do when they're outdoors. You know, he walked about a mile. He walked into a hotel, and then he walked out the other side of the hotel, um, presumably not being followed, obviously not being followed. And then he got on a train. Wow. And he, and he took, a, like, a three-hour train ride to Osaka. And once he got there, that's when he was met by this team of people who put him in this big black box um, put him <laughs> Just on a, that line alone, this team yes. of people who put him in a big black box. Right. They, and they put him on an airplane, a private airplane. Uh, they didn't want to fly directly to Beirut because they were afraid that that would send up too many signals. So they went to Istanbul, right? And then he had to get past, um, a, you know, customs, a second round of customs, having sneaked past the Japanese customs. Then he had to get past the Turkish customs. So we went back in the black box. They took him out of one airplane, put him in another airplane. And he landed in Lebanon. And Lebanon, presumably, he can't be extradited. Well, Lebanon does not have an extradition treaty with Japan. Also, he is a Lebanese citizen, among his other citizenships. He is a highly revered figure in Lebanon. They even have a postage stamp named after him. I mean, he's one of their few kind of international Business businessmen. Figures. They don't yep. have very many. Yeah. 
And and then his wife met him also in Lebanon. So she obviously knew what was going on. So she goes to Lebanon. And then the the hilarious thing is, see, you know, this is one of the houses that um, he had refurbished, renovated. On Nissan's on, dime. On Nissan's dime. Now the question is whether Nissan knew that or not. But he's he's basically he's squatting in it. <laughs> and and he's he's kind of daring Nissan to try and kick him out. And is it true that it's pink? I don't know why that detail it's definitely me. pink. It's definitely I've pink. I've seen it from the okay. outside. But see, this is why I asked the question about whether his wife was involved, because his wife met him there, so she had to have known. Yes, th- that's absolutely true. She had to have known something for sure. Right. But don't forget that he had not been one of the things that most upset him during his ordeal, and I'm I'm sure we'll talk about that ordeal yes. in a bit, is that he, as part of his bail, he was not allowed to speak to his wife <laughs> at all. And uh, his children really, at least one of them, couldn't come to Japan because she was afraid she'd be arrested too. So he he didn't have a lot of contact with his family. He wound up spoke, speaking to his wife twice with permission and with people listening in. Uh, once was around Thanksgiving and once was around Christmas. We're going to come back to the conditions of his bail and the conditions of his treatment because it's important both in the micro and interesting in, in, in the macro. But what's what's really interesting about this is we know the details of, of the escape, but we have no clue how it was planned. And listening to you talk about the monitoring of his conversations with his wife, how did he manage to have communication with the people who helped him escape if everything he said was being monitored? When he was in... In the home that he was using in Japan, in Tokyo, he was not allowed to have any electronics, no internet, no television, no nothing. Wow. But but when he but during the day, he was allowed to go to his lawyer's office where he did have access to a computer and did meet with people. And he did meet people were allowed to come and meet with him. So presumably that's how it was done in person or possibly over the over the internet when he was uh, at his at his lawyer's office. Although his lawyer says he knows nothing. I'm right? sure his lawyer did did know nothing. I'm sure his lawyer. It's Japan a black eye is, for his lawyer. Japan is a is a country where face matters so much. Yep. And he humiliated his lawyers by doing this. His lawyers had vouched for him, and his lawyers were trying to show, through his trial, that a Westerner could get a fair trial. That was their goal. And, you know, they, they, one of the, the very tiny handful of big-time defense attorneys, I mean, in the U.S., they're all over the place, but in Japan, they're very rare. And this was a moment for these lawyers to try and make the case that Japan could treat a Westerner fairly. I just wanted to pause on this note. It was from the Wall Street Journal, and they wrote that the planning involved a team of between 10 and 15 people of different nationalities, and that in all, the team took more than 20 trips to Japan and visited at least 10 Japanese airports before selecting the Osaka airport as a weak link. I mean, it's a stunning degree of coordination, right? Right. Before we move on from this, Michael Taylor, this operative who helped Gone, he's a story in his own right, isn't he? Uh, He is. He's done this a few times before. He's actually been in prison for something um you know and and yes he when when the when the film gets made michael taylor will have a, a starring role for right. sure you can just see that this is this everything about this is cinematic right right Absolutely. right down to the black box in, in the fact there was rumors uh wall street journal printed a rumor that uh, uh carlos Ghosn was already in negotiations with netflix but but he <laughs> denied it he denied it <laughs> 
So tell tell me more about who Carlos Ghosn is for people who don't who haven't followed the craziness in the automotive industry. One way to think about it, Carlos Ghosn is the Lee Iacocca of the modern era, the larger than life um, auto exec who performs miracles. And does he? Is that is that real? To some degree, it is. Yes. So here's how is what happened. Carlos Ghosn was the uh, CEO and chairman of Renault. Uh, a French company. Yeah. Uh, Nissan is in terrible, terrible trouble. And so they go to him and they ask him to, uh, what could he do to help them? So what he does is he, he sets up, it's not a merger, it's an alliance. They remain separate companies, but they um, do things like they buy supplies together and they do some back office things that save money um, and they coordinate in various ways. They, they actually even for a long time split up territories. So like Nissan was big in the U.S., uh, Renault was big in Europe. They both went to China. And, you know, I said he was uh, the Coca. A better phrase might be he was the Marshall Tito of the, of the auto business because what you had was you had this very French culture, Renault, this extremely Japanese culture, Nissan, and you had this one guy who somehow managed to uh, ride herd over all of it. So then Nissan, he did turn Nissan around. I mean, it, it, it was really quite dramatic to the point where Nissan became the stronger of the two companies and Renault became the weaker. But because of the way the alliance was structured, Renault owned more of Nissan, like 15%, than Nissan owned of Renault, which was 5%. Uh-huh. So one of the things one of the, that, that began to upset the Japanese, not the only thing, but one of the things was that Renault, which had become the weaker company, still had the stronger position on the board and in terms of stock uh, ownership. And so do you credit, do, do most people credit Nissan's ability to thrive to Carlos Ghosn? And is he, is he that guy who was able to pull these companies through an incredibly troubled and difficult time in the automotive industry globally? Most people do give him that credit. Okay. Yes, okay. he's viewed as, as, a, as, a, as a true giant of the auto world to the point where, as he, as he noted during his flamboyant press conference once he escaped, you know, Steve Ratner approached him during the financial crisis when he was the auto czar, Obama's auto czar, and asked him if he would be willing to come in and take over General Motors. Wow. Okay. So this guy, he doesn't lack for ego either, it sounds oh. like. <laughs> well, I, I do have to say, yes, if you've, if you've been around CEOs, there's a certain type, you know, larger than life, totally convinced they're right about everything. Sometimes uh, wrong, never in doubt. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but really, um, kind of aggressive. He was, he is, was all of those things. Um, uh, and yeah, you could sort of see how he would drive the Japanese mad. And before we come back to that, wasn't he trying to do something with Fiat and Chrysler? He was trying to pull off yet another coup, right? Yes, he was. He had already um, uh, brought Mitsubishi into the alliance. Okay. Um, he was you know, maneuvering to bring other people in other companies into the alliance. But the big issue really, really for Nissan was they felt that he was going to not just have an alliance, but he was going to merge Nissan and Renault. 
And they were dead set against that. And why? Because they perceived Nissan as the stronger company or because of Japanese pride in Nissan, not wanting to see it submerged or subsumed into Renault? Both is the answer. Both. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, the Japanese are xenophobic people without question. And um, uh, there were a lot of tensions within the alliance, even, you know, before this, this came up, the idea of a merger. And yes, Nissan felt like we're the king of the hill now. Why should we stoop to help, you know, struggling Renault? Yeah, I just saw this note in in, in here that six years after ta- after after Gon took the top job, Nissan had surpassed Honda to become Japan's number two automaker. Its market capitalization had quintupled, and its operating margin had risen tenfold. So that's, it, that's, that, that I mean, that's I, how that's how you, and. In, in the modern world, that's how you become a legend. Yeah, I guess that's true. So were there any whispers about him up until the fall of 2018? Was there any talk that this guy was somehow overstepping some kind of bounds? Or was the fall of 2018 when it all exploded out of seemingly nowhere? There was not so much as a whisper uh, in terms of, you know, whether people thought he was doing things on the sly or on the side or or, or playing tricks or playing games. It, it was... It, one of the the things that was so shocking about this story is it's 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 as if Mary Barra flew to Canada and was 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 arrested for you know uh, stealing from General Motors. That's how kind of shocking this was, and the way they did it, you know, um, the Japanese Nissan executives who were plotting this with prosecutors, and that that is what and happened. they were and they were plotting. Oh yes. Yep. There's no question about that. Um, you know, they 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 tricked Go, uh, Gon's former number two into flying back to Japan, which he had not done in three years and was awaiting back surgery. Wow. They tricked him. He called, an old friend of his from Nissan called him and said, hey, we really need you here for this meeting. We really, come on, we'll send a private plane. And they did. And he lands and he gets arrested. And then Gone has no idea this is coming. He lands and he gets arrested. And that's where they find out. And that's where the world finds out that there are these allegations against him. Truth is stranger than fiction indeed, right? It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an astonishing story. One of the problems with trying to grapple with the story is that it's really hard to know, even now, who's telling the truth. Why is it so hard to know? His compensation was public, right? These were public companies. And so what was disclosed is is knowable and what he took is knowable. Where does the complexity come in? Comp- may, okay, may, so maybe the, pause first on what the charges against okay, him are, so, right? So the, there's a couple of things. The first charge is is that he hid compensation from, uh, from Nissan um, and the board. This seems, frankly, pretty unlikely, although he did settle with the SEC for... A small, uh, well, by his his terms, a small amount of money, um, without uh, you know, uh, deny was it affirming or denying the charges? Yes, it was the the exact language was that they, he settled um, charges that that he and Nissan had failed to disclose more than 140 million in compensation and benefits due to be paid to him in retirement. Right. So, so that hundred, so that 140 million is a big is a big sticking point. So he and his former number two, his name is Greg Kelly. They say there was they they had not signed off on the deal yet that that they had they had sketched it out along with some Nissan executives they had all sketched it out together but there was no uh, 
guarantee it was going to happen. It had not been um, uh, it had not been certified. It had not been approved by the board. And so they say there's no there there. Nissan says you know this was a you were doing this behind our back, and in so doing you were violating Japanese law. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, a uh, second set of charges was that he was you know in effect laundering laundering Nissan's money to put it in his pocket. Uh-huh. So the, the big example of that, that when they, he uses, is um, uh, that there was a, a, a dealer in the Middle East, and Nissan paid this dealer millions of dollars. And then, according to Nissan, the dealer somehow funneled that back, some of that back to Carlos uh-huh. Ghosn. A kind now, of kickback scheme. Ghosn says it was all on the up and up, that the money that was spent to this Mideast dealer, who who he acknowledges was a friend, was not unlike any, you know, upfront incentives to any dealer. So he says, you know, that was on the up and up. And then the third sort of set of charges um, is really more like Dennis Kozlowski's uh, $6,000 shower curtain. shower curtain. Yes, that's right. It's more like that which was not illegal, right? But it was a, a waste of corporate assets. And and so he had these houses, you know, literally like five houses that were all re- renovated for him on Nissan's dime, all supposedly owned by Nissan. His kids all went to Stanford on Nissan's dime. His kids cut and went to Stanford on Nissan's dime? Well, but I, I want to figure out how to work that, that one. <laughs> that, that you really, I mean, he had that in his contract. Okay. That they would pay for it. And then the famous, most famous of all, the birthday party for his yes. wife in Versailles. Marie Antoinette themed, right? Yes. And then he goes at the press conference he gave, he really went off on that. It's like, we've spent so much money helping Versailles, making Versailles great. Versailles is the place everybody wants to go. Versailles is good for our customers. It's good for our, uh, you know, ad agencies. Da, 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 da. So he somehow argues. He was more defensive about at Versailles, I think, than every, any single other thing uh, that he spoke about. So he somehow argues that hosting a Marie Antoinette-themed birthday party for his wife at Versailles was beneficial to Nissan's brand? Pretty much. But uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know that it was Marie Antoinette. Okay, I, I, I read that gonna, somewhere. That, 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 yeah. might, that, might, that might be like the, like the musical <laughs> instrument case, right? Too good right. to be true. Um, so, so what does Renault say about all of this? Because they, you would think they would have a view too. Are they on Nissan's side or um, are they on Gohn's side? Renault is... Uh, Renault doesn't know what to do, to, to be honest. Um, Renault's main concern, especially at the beginning, was to uh, shore up the alliance and not let the alliance fall apart. For the most part, that is a losing battle because without going at the top, the culture clashes have gotten worse and worse. The board disagreements have gotten worse and worse. And I do have to wonder whether the, whether the alliance can survive or not, which would be really bad for Renault. Um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of Carlos Ghosn, they have sort of been tiptoeing towards the idea that maybe there was some wrongdoing. Hmm. But um, they, haven't, they, they haven't really come out and laid out a set of allegations the way Nissan did. Okay. So it's still unclear. I mean... It's it's really complicated for the French because uh, France is in a very anti-elitist mood right now. Uh, Macron, the the president, is viewed as a, an elitist. Carlos Ghosn is viewed as an elitist. In a different era, 
it's quite possible the French would have um, gone, you know, to great lengths to spring him from prison. Um, but not today. But not today. They just kind of kept their mouth shut and really didn't, hasn't done much of anything. Greg Kelly, what's happened to him? Um, nothing so far. Is which he is, still in jail in Japan? No, 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 no. no. He, he, was, he, he was out on bail just as Carlos Ghosn was, yep. awaiting his trial just as Carlos Ghosn was. Um, there was some fear that he would be thrown back in jail as, as kind of punishment or revenge for Ghosn's escape, but that does not appear to have happened. And, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, this is kind of rough for him because obviously he's not going to, he's not going to get out of Japan anytime soon. But on the other hand, this doubles the, the Japanese are going to have a really hard time saying this guy should go to jail for 20 years when the ringleader, quote unquote, has escaped to Lebanon. So that actually may work out for him. So back to this point about how Carlos Ghosn was treated in prison. Tell, tell, tell us about the conditions, first of okay. all. Okay. So let me begin by saying that there's a, there's a um, phrase for how the Japanese deal with people they're accusing of crimes. It's called hostage justice. And the idea is that the, the Japanese are not looking for evidence. They're looking for confessions. And that's the way the system works. Uh, and so, and that's why they have a 99% conviction rate, because most of the time when they go to court, the person has con confessed. The person has confessed. And the way they get to you confess is, you know, um, uh, 11 and 12 hours of interrogation a day, uh, no lawyer present, um, uh, lights on 24-7, um, you know, your room is constantly cold, your, your cell is constantly cold. Um, the, there's various other forms of, you know, what you might call benign torture. In other words, they're not physically beating him, but they're making his life completely, utterly miserable. And then the way the system works is that um, after 23 days, they have to either let him out on bail or come up with new charges. And so what they did constantly was they would, you know, wait till the last minute and just as he was about to be sprung from bail, they they throw in new charges. So we wound up spending a total of a hundred and some odd days in prison, you know, under these conditions, under these interrogation conditions. And they're always saying to him, you know, if you ever want to see your wife again, you better confess. You know, we're going to make this much worse for you if you don't confess. It's 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 just like you know what you would think and think would that go on in Russia or China? And the fact that he didn't confess suggests either that he believes himself to be innocent or that he's a Really tough. Well, son of a bitch. I think it takes a lot to resist or that. Both. Yes, yeah. I would think so too. Is so. Is there just to play devil's advocate? And I'm not arguing that people necessarily should be treated like Carlos Ghosn does. But is there any argument that in a world where many people here feel we go too easy on white collar criminals, and that people who do damage, um, but but are white collar criminals, get far lighter treatment than those who are, for instance, in possession of marijuana? And so, is there is there any argument that that might deter the sort of um, happenings that we see in the U.S. from the financial crisis to Enron to Theranos? Well, for, I mean, I would never argue that white-collar criminals should be denied due process and should be, and, and confessions should be tried to be forced out of them. I would never argue that. To me, the issue is in, in the U.S. that we don't, our prosecutors have lost the nerve to um, indict white-collar criminals and that they, and, and the courts, you know, various uh, uh, rulings in, in court 
uh, have made it more difficult to bring uh, white collar prosecutions. Um, that's a lot different from um, from what happens in Japan. And, and really, the, the outrage about what happened in Japan really had less to do with whether or not Carlos Ghosn had committed a crime than than this kind of uh, uh, a new insight that oh my God, look how their justice system operates. Right. It's right. like what Western country? I mean, it's not a Western country, but they have Western principles. What Western country treats prisoners like this? Treats and treats someone not even a prisoner. Treats right. someone who's just been accused without even being found guilty. That's right. In that now, way. Right. And so here's the other thing I I, I I was thinking about this is that, you know, one of the things that happened is that Greg Kelly gave an interview at some point to a Japanese newspaper, and he made a series of accusations about the top people at Nissan, the very people who had plotted against him and Carlos Ghosn. Wow. And what did he say? He said that they had padded their salaries and that they had done things, they had done the exact same sort of things that they were accusing Carlos Ghosn of doing. And say that again. When did he give this interview? Before or after he was arrested? Oh, no. Well, well Wait, after well he was after. arrested. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think it might have been this past summer. Okay. But anyway, the, the upshot was that the CEO had to resign, that the other people involved had to resign, that they had to pay back some of the money. They were guilty, but and they it, admitted it. But they got slaps on the wrist because it was apparently in the interest of Nissan that they did this? No, they got slaps on the wrist because they're Japanese. <laughs> That's interesting. And, so, and, so in other words, even that system of laws, that it's in the com company's interest or against the company's interest, right. doesn't really apply. It also depends on who you are. Right. Well, in this particular case, that was compounded by the fact that they didn't want to put the people who were accusing Carlos Ghosn in prison because that would completely undercut their ability to prosecute. So is it just a completely ridiculous idea that the justice system should function the same way for everyone, regardless of who they are? And you look it's at this. It's not a ridiculous thing, but you know that's not how the world works. I mean, it just isn't. Well, that's one of the larger implications of this story, isn't it? That that's just not how the world works. Well, it's the larger implication of the Epstein story. It was until very recently the larger implication of the Harvey Weinstein story. I mean, it's the it's the larger implication of the financial crisis story. I mean, you you know, the, the rich people get get top top lawyers, and they can put pressure on that other people can't. I mean, Carlos Ghosn didn't have that going for him, which is part of why he is, which is a large part of why he decided he had to escape because okay. he had he had no he had no swag in Japan. So are you pro or con his escape? I mean, would you say that he saw a set of rules that he thought were unfair? And so he used all the resources he could marshal to flee that set of rules and find a different set because he could. Or do you think he should have stayed to face the music in Japan because that's their system of rules? And that's I don't know what you do. I agree that he would not have gotten a fair trial uh, in Japan. And I also believe that he was fundamentally kidnapped. And so escaping for kidnappers, even though it's a government, seems okay to me. On the other hand, I really do understand those who say, you know, just because you're rich, you shouldn't get to decide what jurisdiction you know, you get prosecuted in. Right. Isn't the essential problem with our world the fact that people who don't have to follow the rules, that people who can pay not to follow the rules can pay not to follow them, right? Where exactly. everybody else has to. Right. That's exactly. And, and, you know, you have to be very rich to pull off what he pulled off. So before we, before we come back to how this all plays out, what does it mean for Nissan and Renault? Nothing good. Nothing good for Nissan either. 
No, no, Nissan. If you look at Nissan stock, it's just tumbled uh, since he since this happened. Uh, Renee, Renault remains uh, a very troubled company. You know, we're in a, a glut of autos right now. Um, uh, neither company is doing all that well in China. Um, Nissan's working really hard to, uh, uh, you know, move to electric vehicles. They have uh, some of the, they have the Leaf, which is a fairly popular model. Um, but you know, the range of the leaf doesn't even come close to a Tesla. And, um, you know, I think this is a bet that's so far not particularly working well for them. You wrote this, which is great. Gohan has been an awful distraction for Nissan, which has cost it dearly. With Gohan now free to defend himself and to hurl his own allegations at the company, it's only going to get worse. At this point, Nissan couldn't call a truce even, at, even if it wanted to, and it can't win either. Nissan has to decide whether it is more interested in pursuing Gohan or fixing what's wrong with the company. It has already proved that it can't do both. Well, I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. Of course, I did write that. So, of course, <laughs> so I you think better think true. it's true, right? But, but, you know, think about it. Nissan has spent so much of the past year and a half just trying to, you know, leak to the press and do this and do that to to throw these allegations out, to 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 besmirch going to. I mean, they really uh, this has kind of been their obsession. Can I ask a dumb question that I should have asked at the beginning? Why couldn't they just fire him? Why couldn't they just get the board of directors exactly, to get rid of him? Exactly, exactly. If, if that's what's so nuts about this whole thing is, is I think were they afraid of him? Did they think he still had too much power on the board? Oh, right. How do you when you when you're sick of a CEO or sick of a, a chairman, and even if you think he's done something wrong, you fire him. Maybe you maybe you 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 file a civil suit. You try to claw back some money. Whatever. It's Weren't not there options. It's, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. It speaks to either uh, a particular mindset among the Japanese or the fact that there must have been a lot of hatred of going brewing in those in those ranks for a long time, or maybe both. Right? I think that I think there's a third aspect of that though, which is the go, going back to the um, the governance structure, which is that Renault, don't forget, owned fifteen percent of Nissan. Right. And so it had an automatic 15% foregone on the board if, if, among shareholders if you had to have a vote to get rid of him or not. Uh-huh. And I think they may have also feared because he's Carlos Ghosn and he you know, believes in the rightness of him, his cause, that he would have put up a huge proxy fight and, and may not have just, um, you know, lied down and, and crawled away. And why does it shake out that he was so valuable for Nissan? Why why can't they just rise and conquer with, with without him? Why was this a one man show? Twenty years ago, they needed a visionary. Yeah, they truly did. And I think maybe part of his problem, Carlos Ghosn, is that he didn't want to be surrounded by other people who were as smart as he was, or people who were in a position to take over. So his his successor, who did turn on him, but who had he, who he had groomed really turned out to be a very passive and not very good CEO. Um, so I think part of the, part of the problem was Gone Gone was a visionary, but he, you know, he didn't, he didn't create a culture of people who wanted to carry on that vision. And those two don't necessarily go hand in hand, right? The visionary and the person who can create the culture. Right. Them, right. In fact, yeah. usually they are pretty diametrically opposed if you look at history, I think. 
it's an interesting tangent to, to, to all of this. So what happens now to Nissan and, and, and Renault, assuming this nothing good, but how does, how does this shake out? Well, um, you know, one of two things has to happen for the, for the companies. You know, either they have to get together and agree, you know, by God, we got to make this alliance work. It saves us so much money. It, it'll, be, it'll be a disaster if we try to break it up. And, you know, let's just put our problems, let's put our squabbles aside and get back to, get back to basics. Or they will break it up. And it'll be short-term disastrous, and I don't know what it'll mean in the long term. They'll probably both get bought. Um, and amid all the the craziness in the global automotive industry, it's that this just adds to the moving chess pieces, right? right? It, it, it's a terrible time for this to be happening in the in the global auto industry, um, especially with you know we're we're in such a time of ferment, and when it's really it's unclear. It's clear that electric vehicles are going to be a big deal, but it's unclear how quickly that will come. And uh, the, the automobile industry has to be ready to, to move if it does. Um, and these two companies are just kind of mired in, in their troubles. And for Gohan, how do you think this shakes out? Well, actually, before we get to him, do you think Japan ever brings charges against the people who helped him escape? Uh, if they could figure out who they are, <laughs> they will for sure. Yeah, I do think they'll bring charges. I that that I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, that that would so there'll be another leg to this. Yes. And yes. for Gohan, does he get tried somewhere? Can he live as a fugitive forever? Um, I think it's very unlikely that he'll ever be tried. You um, think really? Um, yes. Right now, he's stuck in Lebanon. He can't leave, even if he wants to. He certainly can't leave to it for any country that has an extradition treaty with Japan. Interpol has a, a, a red dot or something out, you know, he, he's a wanted man worldwide, thanks to Interpol. So he's, he, he's in a different kind of prison, then you know, it's, it's it, countrywide, it's a countrywide prison, but it's still a prison. He can't go anywhere. The, the Lebanese have actually taken his, um, taken his passport away. So and, 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 oh, they've indicted his wife, so she can't go anywhere either. Japan has indicted his wife? Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah. So they're stuck, but at least they're stuck together. Is they're, there, they're some, stuck is there together, some glorious romance to that? They're stuck in a country that they're very familiar with. Uh, she's Lebanese. I think he's going to be spending the next couple of years, you know, writing a book, dealing with a movie, trying to, and, and mostly trying to clear his name. He's got, he's rich, but he's not rich like he used to be. This, the... This between the money he spent on his defense lawyers and the money he spent escaping. I mean, it's it's like in the in the tens of millions of dollars. And you know, I haven't had a chance to point this out yet, but one of Gong's frustrations was that he was being paid like a European and a Japanese executive and not like an American executive. Aha. Uh -huh. So he was making fifteen million or whatever when, you know. In the U.S., he'd be making $40 million. So there's a global competitiveness issue to this, too. Or, uh, I'm rich, but I'm not as rich as they are, a relativity aspect right. to this. Some, some would call that jealousy. Some would just call that jealousy. That's probably a better word. <laughs> right. So that's, that's interesting. So can he, So does he get, is this a form of hell in and of itself, then, and that this is a guy who wasn't done with the world, but if he does end up ditching a trial and staying in Lebanon, the world is done with him at some point. I, I think that's right. I, I, he's obviously never going to run an auto, an auto company again. The Japanese, unless 
Lebanon or France decides to try to negotiate some kind of truce with Japan over this, the Japanese will never drop the charges. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's really hard to see how this works out for him in a way that gives him the freedom to go to Davos, to go to the U.S., to find another company to run, etc. So in a weird way, regardless of what happens, the Japanese won. Though they may never see it that way. They'll never see it that way. Never. But yeah, he's stuck. He's stuck. On that note, thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation, and I can't wait to see the movie. I can't wait to see it either. Uh, and then, of course, there's the podcast. There, There's the podcast. There has to be a podcast. <laughs> thank, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you, Joe, for coming. Thank you. Well, I, for one, can't wait to see this movie. Do you feel the same way? This story has everything. Money, power, the abuse of power, global intrigue, and there's an entire industry at stake. It seems to me that Carlos Goen's time in a Japanese jail and his exile mean that he has and is going to continue to pay a price for whatever sins he has committed. Is it a high enough price? And will Renault and Nissan's shareholders be the ones who ultimately pay more? Stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening to season one of Making a Killing. I hope you've enjoyed it. Follow me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 for news about season two. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Hyde. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? 
a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 